Welcome to the Know and Do podcast. This is Justin Barton, the host of this podcast, and I'm grateful to be able to present this episode to you of a conversation I had with a man named Chad Carling, whose life spanned from, oh, the mid-30s until now. He's still alive and kicking in his 80s, and this conversation will range all over the place. We're really excited to get this out here. Now, I want to share a little bit about the Know and Do podcast. It started out a long time ago, 90 plus episodes ago, with me just kind of sharing some musings, some studies that I had, and I had them in a very short form um, podcast, 8 to 12 minutes long of just insights that I had gained and invitations I was giving to myself and the listening audience. Over the last few months, I've really developed a love for long-form conversations and have set up and recorded many long-form conversations and am continuing to do so. If you are finding any value in the Know and Do podcast and would like to show support for what I'm doing here, please go to Facebook and look up Know and Do podcast and like and follow us. Also, it would be very helpful if you went to the service in which you are listening to this podcast right now and subscribed to the Know and Do podcast and liked us and reviewed us there. I am also developing a new podcast that will be called Journey Through Life. Whereas the Know and Do podcast is very heavily spiritually based and a lot of religion is discussed, and that's great, and I love doing that. Journey Through Life will be more of a how life has affected me, whether it's spiritually or whether it's just through experiences. Many of the guests of the Know and Do podcast are very faithful and very active in their own uh, religious communities, whereas in Journey Through Life, I'm j- I just want to talk to the regular person on the street, whether or not that person is um, actively religious or spiritual. I just want to learn about things that make them tick. The catch line for the journey through life will be ordinary people with extraordinary stories, which is very similar to the Know and Do podcast. I talk with everyday people and learn what makes them tick and the wisdom that they have gathered and garnered throughout their lives. And I want to be able to, yes, apply that into my own life, but also put it into a format where you, the listener, can grow and learn and gain something from the experiences of everyday people. I have already recorded several episodes of the Journey Through Life podcast and will plan on releasing it sometime in early June. So keep your eyes open for that. Before jumping into this conversation, I want to let Chad Carling's son, Chad, just share a little bit about why he and his father have decided to do this conversation. This would be great. When I talked to my family uh, about this idea, they thought it was wonderful uh, because this would be something we can always keep for generations to be able to know uh, the life and times of, of Chad Carlin. And that right there is the very purpose of the Know and Do podcast. I want to create a legacy, a legacy where for generations to come, there is a digital and audio recording of a person's voice, a person who means something to very many other people. So if you or anybody you love would be a 
candidate for the Know and Do podcast, please email me at knowanddopodcast at gmail.com and we can set things up. Now, on to the podcast conversation with Chad Carling. Chad, I really appreciate you being willing to sit down and, and talk to me a little bit about uh, your life and lessons learned and, and experiences that you've had. It's, uh, it's really neat, and I appreciate you being willing to do that. So, so, Chad, tell me a little bit about who you are currently, your age, maybe some hobbies you like doing, some things that motivate you in life. Well, the things uh, that motivated me most in life was aircraft. Huh. When I a young boy, my mother wallpapered my uh, bedroom with uh, airplanes, and the local airport was up there, and I went up there and to the airport, uh, rode my horse up there, and tied it to a fence post and went over and talked to uh, Tony Dearden, who was uh, he was in he was at the maintenance man for Brown's Flying Service. You want me to go into the, to right now about the training program there, or just? No, I think we'll get to that in a few minutes. I'd like to get a little bit more information about where that was. Is tell tell me where that was. That's Fillmore, Utah, the municipal airport, All just right, west there. of town. All right, in Fillmore, very good. Tell me some things. How old are you right now? I'll be eighty-seven in October. Eighty-seven. Well, I lost lost a year somewhere. <laughs> you lost a year somewhere. 88 in October. 88 in October. See, and, and when, when I uh, tell people how old I am, I have to turn to my wife and say, hey, uh, how old am I? So <laughs> I feel you there. And you really have been motivated by air, by uh, aircraft your whole life, huh? Well, before we get into that, tell me where and when your life started. Did you, were you born in Fillmore? I was born in Fillmore. And my father, he purchased some land west of Fillmore and proved up on it. We got watered out of the mountains, a chalk creek water, creek water. And he dug a full-size basement with his horses. And uh, he built a house with lava rock. Wow. And drilled a well. And we had a windmill to pump the water and we got an old tank from the railroad that we had next to the windmill, the wooden tank above the ground. And when the wind blew, we'd fill the tank and that was for livestock. Mm. But as we had no electricity. We operated the Aladdin lamps, battery operated radios and carried the water in the house and had a, a big pot on the stove at all times with hot water. Huh. Do you remember when you first got electricity there at the house? Yes, it was right after the war in around 47 or something, 50, 47, yeah. Yeah. The Royal Electric Association formed a, a co-op and they, they got the power in there and we turned on the electricity and we got a, had a Myers ejector water pump that sat in the basement and we run pipe out to the well and down the well. 
Mm. And electricity pumped the water and we had a pressure tank in the basement and it filled up with pressure. So we had pressure and we had a, when they built the house, we had a bathroom, but we didn't have any fixtures in there until after we got the power. Huh. But after uh, we got electricity, we got rid of the windmill and things were a lot better. We had a, on the north side of the house, we had a kind of an evaporative refrigerator, you might say. We had a, a, a frame that had uh, burlap sacks on the, all the way around it and the door on the front with burlap on it. And then on the top, it had a, a big steel tank, uh, aluminum tank, and we pumped water into that. Hmm. And the drip down along the, the sides of the burlap and the wind would go through it and it would keep our vegetables from spoiling. Wow. So when, when you got the power there to the um, house, what types of uh, things did that change? You talked about some running water. You talked about a little bit of light, uh, put the bathroom in, I'm, the fix, bathroom fixtures in and everything. But what other uh, things changed with your family dynamic when power came to your house? Well, we got a telephone then. It was operated by uh, the dry cell batteries. And uh, I mean, it, it was just a different life to have electricity. And I'm, I remember our church was down, we had a, a church and we had to go early and before we had the power, start the kohler generator so we could have electricity in the church. Hmm. But after we got power, we didn't need the Kohler generator anymore. And we had a big uh, celebration for turning on the lights at the <laughs> ward. And we had homemade ice cream, lots of freezers. Huh. So it was a whole yeah. town event, huh? Yeah, it was a ranching community. Also, we had a nice spring down by the craters. And we go down there in the summer and take a burlap sack and an axe and chop chop ice out of this uh, cave. Mm. And we take it uh, up to the house and crush it all and make homemade ice cream. We didn't have to buy our ice. We, we found a place that there was ice the year round down that, that ice cave. But wow. As years went on, other generations, they couldn't take care of it. They trashed it and everything. So the Bureau of Lands Management closed it up. Mm. But that was that was a that was a special treat for you when you were a kid to get down there and get some ice and make some ice cream, huh? Well, it sure was. Yeah. What? Uh, so tell me about the oldest relative that you remember meeting when you were a child. Well, it was my grandpa Harvey Cummings. He lived in Kenosha. Hmm. So tell me a little bit about Harvey Cummings. Well, his father was William Cummings, and he came uh, with the Mormon people across the plains, and they settled up in uh, Provo Canyon. And William was a trapper. He trapped beavers. Hmm. And then Brigham Young says, we need to move you on down to to Kenosha, Utah. So he moved down to Kenosha, and that's where my, grand, my grandfather, Harvey Cummings, was born. And uh, they had a big hotel there. 
It was a stagecoach hotel hmm. made out of adobe rocks. It had rooms upstairs. That hotel is still there. And I was up to Fillmore at the railroad station one day. I think I was walking to town. A lot of times you walked and hitchhiked in those days. Right. Rode horses. But uh, my grandfather, Harvey Cummings, he had a brand new Ford truck and he drove it up on the scales there to weigh it, loose, loose wheat to sell to the Heinz and Company that's going in the elevator there at the railroad station. Mm-hmm. He says, well, come in with me and after we dump this wheat, we'll go uptown and get something to eat. Wow. So we did and Grandpa never carried a wallet. He, he had the word denim clothes and his right front right front pocket, he had greenbacks. That's, that was his bank. Oh. He folded them up and had them in his uh, in his pocket. Yeah. And after we ate, I went back to Kanaj with him and I ended up staying there my junior and senior years in high school and working for him on his ranch. Mm. So was that your first job, was working on your grandfather's ranch? Oh, no. I had jobs with uh, the Huntsman family. Uh, Is that I the can, same Huntsman family that uh, I think there's a cancer clinic with them? Yes. Okay. Let me let me read what I've got here. Sherry Shepard writes for the Millard County Chronicle. Well, the turkey farms of Flowell in the 1940s. Todd Carling's ranch was located five miles west of Fillmore, and Alonzo Huntsman's ranch was on the southwest corner of the Clear Lake Junction, heading west on the main road to Flowell. The Carlings and the Huntsman built two large chicken-type coops on the ranches and installed several brooder houses, heaters, brooder heaters, as you were, heaters which kept the one-day-old turkeys warm. Several hundred of those one-day-old turkeys were trucked in from California in a temperature-controlled truck and delivered to the two ranches. When the turkeys were nine weeks old, they went out into the field and harvested grasshoppers. (laughs) They had to have a herder with them at all times to keep them together and to keep the coyotes away. Herders lived in a camp wagon and put lanterns out at night to keep the coyotes away. I was the herder for the Carling Ranch. My dad bought a 1931 Ford Model A pickup from Lauren Warner that I used for turkey support, water and feeding. Harold Huntsman was a herder for the Huntsman's Ranch and moved the turkeys much like we did. There was always well water in the ditches for the turkeys. In the early fall, we fed the turkeys ground corn and grain to get them ready to sell for the Thanksgiving market. Several trucks came in from Gunnison, Utah to pick up the turkeys for the market. Alonzo Huntsman was my teacher in high school and I liked the man. And his son Blaine Huntsman was also a teacher in the Salt Lake area. Alonzo and Blaine went to Harvard University Blaine and his son, John Orr, worked in the summer on the Huntsman Ranch. One of my good friends was Scott Huntsman. 
we hunted pheasants and ducks together. One day, Scott, John Orr, and I went duck hunting up at the Willard Hanson Ponds, and the huntsman's turkeys were in the area. Mankind knows John Huntsman today worldwide for his, John being a man of honor. The, the company, his company sold for several million dollars and sealed it with a handshake. There were complications and a great deal of time dragged on before final settlement. In the meantime, John's company nearly doubled in value. The purchaser said, John, it's only fair that we negotiate the deal. John says, I gave my word on the transaction and I'm not going to go back on my word. Hmm. Wow. So, so you worked there on the turkey farm as a herder um, as a child. How old were you at that point? I was about 15, I guess. About 15. So the war had... Basically, I think the war was probably over by then because if you were 10 when the war broke out, correct? Yes. Yeah. So tell me your, your recollection of what your thoughts and feelings were when you first heard about Pearl Harbor and uh, the United States getting involved in World War II. I know you were young, but uh, what were your impressions? Well, what happened, we heard about it on the radios, but we got on the school bus and went to school that day. And we got off the school bus, didn't even get in the church or the schoolhouse. And the teachers and principal says, we're not having any school today. I want you to get on the bus and go back home and listen to the president of the United States. He's going to address the nation. Mm. I want you to all listen to it. So we went home and listened to it on our battery operated radio. Franklin Delano Roosevelt's words were, we the people of the United States declare all out war against the Japanese empire of Japan. And from that day, things changed in the, the valley and throughout the United States. And the National Guard was called out and they were the tank destroyers. They loaded their tanks on the Trains and troop carriers came in with flatbeds and loaded the tanks on the flat cars and the high school band played and we marched from town down to the airport or down to the railroad station, which was uh, oh, about a half a mile, I guess. Mm. And then they shipped out for the South Pacific. Mm. Did you have relatives, close relatives, uncles, cousins, whatever that, uh, that went off and fought in World War II? I did. I had two uncles that was in World War II, and they both returned. What uh, stories did they share about their experiences in World War II? Were there any stories that they shared that you thought, wow, that's really interesting, or were they fairly quiet about their service? Well, they was kind of quiet about it. They didn't say much. Um, one of my uncles on the Cum Wayne Cummings, he he was sent to Dayland, Arizona, which is kind of a desert out east of Yuma. Right. And they were trained there for Africa. Mm. And he went from after he had his training there, he went to Africa. 
the other uncle, he he was Grover Carling, and he he was kind of with the National Guard, and they kind of hung together and returned home as a group. Mm-hmm. And after they got home, they gave them gave them jobs. They created a a cheese factory and gave them give them more the veterans after yeah. the Second World War. Good. So what what effect? I mean, you said that you were highly motivated by aircraft. Was uh, do you think that uh, World War II and some of the things that you heard about uh, uh, planes, bombers, fighters, whatever during the war kind of motivated that, or is that a natural um, curiosity that you had from from your earliest recollections? Well, I graduated from high school in 1950. Mm-hmm. And I was all state in football and played in the Shrine game in Salt Lake City in 1950. Then I went to Cedar City and played football down there. At Southern SUSC at that point? It was BAC at that point. Oh, BAC, okay. And uh, I was in the ROTC and I studied air science. And I, I went in the Air Force. And I was uh, at the Cafe Eileen in Fillmore, and I was buying a ticket to go to Salt Lake to get on the train to go to Texas for military training. Mm-hmm. And a friend of mine he used to be our bus driver and a World War II veteran, B-17 pilot that mm-hmm. got shot down and was in the ocean. His name is Carol Robinson. And when they picked him up and put him to the hospital, they said he'd never walk again. Mm. He proved them wrong, mm. able to walk. But uh, back to the buying the ticket to go to Salt Lake, Carol was in the cafe that day, and he says, hey, Carling, you don't have to buy a ticket to go to Salt Lake. I'm going up today. You can fly up with me. Oh. So I got my bag, and we went to the airport, and... I flew into Salt Lake City with him and got on the train and went to Texas. And then I got uh, sent after Texas training. I got sent to Nellis Air Force Base in Las Vegas, Nevada. Mm-hmm. They needed some people in Korea real bad. So they, we had a, a classroom in the morning and in the afternoon we had OJ training, all JT training out on the flight line on F-80 shooting star jets. Mm. Took 30 days leave and was sent to Korea. Hmm. And the Korea story, do you want to hear that? Well, let's talk a little bit about that. Yeah. Tell me about what you did in the military in Korea and a little bit about that story. Okay. I got to Korea in 53. I guess it was 52. 52 and 53, I was in Korea. And I was assigned to the Ford Fighter Interceptor Wing the 336 Fighter Interceptor Squadron, and I was a weapons repair man. We, uh, at that time, we didn't have anything on the wings. It was slick wings except for fuel tanks and 650 caliber machine guns, three on each side of the pilot. Mm. And that was my responsibility was to keep the, they had air chargers on, we had to keep the uh, air compressor working inside the fuselage to keep air on those uh, guns, the uh, air chargers. So if they happen to have a, a dead round up in combat, they had a retract switch and it'd 
throw a, new, a live round in the chamber and so he wouldn't have a dead gun. Mm. But Robbie Reisner was my pilot. And we worked as a team. The crew chief was Earl F. Victory, and the pilot was Robbie Reisner. And I was a weapons man. We had, I had my name on the right side and front, and uh, the crew chief had his name on the right behind my name. Then the pilot had his name on the left side. Hmm. Robbie Reisner, he he had Bugs Bunny for his uh, insignia on his side. And uh, he was a real tiger. Robbie Reisner, he wanted to get up there and, and get those MiGs. Mm. When the MiGs were flying, he wanted to be up there. Mm. It seemed like Sunny was the balls out day when they seemed the enemy to think you, you know, wasn't uh, doing anything on Sunny, but we had every aircraft that would fly on Sunday in the air in North Korea. And this is the way we had a radio in the communication shop was right next to our weapons shop. And when our aircraft was in the air, we'd go into the communication shop and sit down there and listen to the dog channel. Mm. You know, just where our airplane was and we'd listen to the chatter. And the red leader would go in. It's like, Robbie, this is red leader. I'm, I'm padlocked at me. Well, turn it back a little bit. Uh, we got uh, bogeys at one o'clock, unidentified object at one o'clock. Mm-hmm. Well, they get a little closer and they see it has a red star on it. We got bandits at one o'clock, bandits at one o'clock. Geronimo, Geronimo, that means you punch off the fuel tanks, mm-hmm. hit the panic button and the 275 gallon fuel tanks on each wing drops off the wing so that the aircraft can have more availability to chase the MiG. Right. And then the pilot to say, I'm padlocked. That means that he's padlocked. He's a uh, radar is up there in front of him and the crosshair and the radical. And he moves the BH stick grip around until the crosshair is on the tailpipe of that MiG 15. Hmm. And he pulls the de-dent, first D dent of the BH, the trigger on the BH stick grip to the first D dent. And the gun camera starts working. Hmm. And the second second pull on the trigger goes. <laughs> <laughs> wow. And things start flying. Wow. Then Robbie would say, scratch one. Wow. That means he bailed out. He had him down. Yeah. But I don't know if, if you, uh, there's a man by the name of Tillman. He processed uh, some footage with Reisner on an episode in uh, North Vietnam, North Korea. Mm-hmm. Robbie was a famous man. Mm. I learned a lot from him. He was from Oklahoma. So, so what are some lessons um, that you learned from Robbie that maybe came outside of the, I know you weren't in the cockpit literally with him, but you were in there with him on the radio hearing what was going on. What are some lessons or life lessons you learned from following him and the, those experiences? Well, he, he, he believed in prayer and that impressed me in the crew chief. Robbie, he'd come out and he'd bring some, some Johnson's wax and he'd say, we're going to 
plaques up Robbie's Bobby today, put some plaques on the wings and the fuselage. I can get more speed out of it. Hmm. So we did that. And uh, we were just always, always glad to have him come out and pre-flight the aircraft and we'd walk around with him on inspections. Hmm. But this Mr. Tillman, he put this footage together of one of Robbie's episodes in Korea. Mr. Tillman called me and he says, I understand you as Robbie Reisner's weapons man. He took care of his machine guns. Yes, I did. Mm-hmm. Well, I want to know about Lieutenant Logan. What about Lieutenant Logan? Well, I says, well, he was a wingman of Robbie. Robbie liked to have him as a wingman. But I, I, didn't, I don't know much about him. I wasn't acquainted with him as much as it was Robbie Reisner. Mm-hmm. But uh, this... He, he told me I'm putting this together and you watch it's going to be on the history channel mm. it surely was mm. so and I had an eight millimeter camera and I took a bunch of pictures into Korea and then sent it to Eastman Kodak and then they processed them and sent them my home and then later my son he's got, got them on DVDs now and mm. also that episode from uh, the history channel I got it on the tail end of it Mm. But uh, this episode with Robbie Reisner, you can probably pull it up and find it on the History Channel. Mig, 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 Mig Alley with a fourth fighter interceptor wing, 336 mm. fighter interceptor squadron and Robbie R. Reisner mm. in command. Well, mm. they were up there and he, they jumped four MIGs. And one of the, the other three MiGs took off and went back across the Yala River to Manchuria. And this one pilot was a real good pilot. He took off and Robbie wasn't going to let him go. So he hung right with him. Robbie hung right with him. Mm-hmm. And uh, he pulls double S's in the air and everything else, trying to shake Robbie off, but Robbie wouldn't leave. He, him and Lieutenant Logan hung right with him. Mm. And he, he got down in a riverbed and started down the riverbed and Robbie was right by his side. Mm. Well, in fact, Robbie had shot his canopy off before he got down the riverbed. Mm. The MiG-15 was flying without a canopy. Wow. And Robbie was flying right along the side of him. And Robbie, he told us when he got back, he says, I was so close to that MiG pilot, I could see the stitching on his leather helmet. And he waved his hand at me and I waved my hand at him. But the, it was like the movies, but it wasn't like movies. Huh. It was a real thing. And he chased this MiG-15 over into Manchuria, an airfield over there. He, Robbie fired out every all of his ammunition on this MiG and shot his wing off. And so he he crashed. He wasn't he wasn't able to make a landing. He crashed into a bunch of parked airplanes, and they all blew up. Wow. So that that he took out many many with one one shot shoot down there, huh? So they was headed back home, back to Campo. Lieutenant Logan got up with him, and they was flak flying all over the place. Mm. And Lieutenant Logan got hit in the belly with some flak, and he was losing JP four and hydraulic fuel, mm. hydraulic pressure and JP four. Robbie was under him and says, "You're not going to get back to Campo." If you bail out here, 
you're going to be taken a prisoner. We don't want that. I'm going to do something that I've never done before. Lieutenant Logan, you shut your engine down, and I'm going to insert my nose up your tailpipe, and I'm going to push you out over the Yellow Sea so near Shenampo so the air rescue can pick you up. They had SA-16 flying boats there to pick you up, and they have helicopters. Well, he, he got out there near Shenampo, the United Nations uh, recovery station, and uh, Lieutenant Logan says, well, I got rescue in sight. I'm pulling my connections. I'll see you back to the base tonight, Robbie. Mm. Well, he went down and hit the water, and the SA-16, uh, the that helicopter pilot said, told the SA-16, you got the last one. We're going to get this one. Well, the helicopter pilot thought he would help him. He maneuvered over Lieutenant Logan, which is in the water, tried to push him over to the shore. It wasn't that far. But Lieutenant Logan, he got tangled up in his parachute lines around his neck and everything, and he drowned him. Oh. So we lost Lieutenant Logan. Mm. That's a, I'll bet that was rough for it your... Was. Yeah. Hmm. What uh, you mentioned earlier that uh, Robbie Reisner believed in prayer. Can you remember any specific times where he, he you prayed with him, or where you came in on him praying for whatever reason? Oh yes. Just we had he'd always come out and pre-flight the aircraft, and we early and where he had to get down in. To the formation and he'd say let's have a word of prayer and the crew chief and I and Robbie would have prayer and and things worked out well for Robbie mm. you know Robbie he uh, got called in to uh, President Johnson's office in the White House mm. to receive a distinguished flying cross so he was there in President Johnson's office and they put the distinguished flying cross around his neck and Time Life magazine was there and took his picture hmm. and put it on the front page of the Time Life magazine. Wow. Well, Robbie got out of the Korean War and he got over in Vietnam and was flying F-4 Phantoms. He got shot down the first time and he was taken... Uh, by friendly forces, and he was back in the air again. But the second time, he got hit by a SAM missile, and he was in North Vietnam, and they took him as a prisoner. Hmm. And he was in the Hotel Hilton for eight and a half years. Wow. And while he was uh, in there, they interviewed him all the time. Had to put him in a chair, and tied his hands behind his back and had a rope and put a stick in the rope and they'd twist, twist the rope until, and he would, they would ask him these questions. They says, we know who you are. We've got Time Life magazine right here in front of us. Mm. You're Robbie Reisner. You're a decorated hero. We want to know all about this. But he wouldn't give nothing but his name, rank, and organization and serial number. Mm. That went on and on and on till they broke all of his ribs. Mm. 
after they got out of the camp, he was the first one to step off of the hospital ship in Okinawa. And he waved his hand, Robbie's back. But Robbie, in several statements he'd made, he said the biggest mistake I ever made in my Air Force career was to allow, allow Time Life magazine to take my picture oh. and put it on the front page of their magazine. Mm. It hurt me. To, I suffered a lot from that in the camps in Vietnam. Have, have you had the opportunity to uh, meet with him since since the war? Have you have you had conversations with him since then? Well, we've had a, an organization, Fourth Fighter Association, people that served in the Fourth Fighter in Kempo Air Force Base in Korea association and Robbie talked uh, down south uh, I think it was uh, Warner Robins Air the, where the Air Force Museum is back east uh, he talked there and I've got pictures of his talk and everything but I didn't get there mm. I was only able to, to get to two of the meetings one in Las Vegas and one in Phoenix mm. yeah Robbie passed away about 18 months ago oh okay he had a hard old life in that camp, sitting back. Yeah, I'll bet. Tell me about other experiences that you had yourself while you were in Korea, where you saw the hand of God in your own life and the things that you were doing. Well, we always always had prayer, and we had a, a little uh, church over there. Well, it was on the in the between the two runways and the australians they had meteor jets on the on the west side of the runway and they had some mormon church members there and we'd met meet over it was kind of a make-believe chapel with a dirt floor and wooden benches mm. but we met there and had a sacrament meeting every sunday mm. Sometimes it was late, sometimes it was early. Depend on our mission on Sunday. How did ho holding church and participating in a sacrament meeting, how did that help and support you while you were away from family and in a um, combat zone? Well, you know what? We had the sacrament, and it was really something to be able to be together and bear a testimony. And, strengthen your faith and uh, one other thing my mother back in Fillmore she uh, would get the Millard County progress had all the news of the county and wrap it all up in a roll and send it airmail to me in Korea huh. and when I got that paper I'd take it to my tent and uh, it took me about 30 or 45 minutes to read it. But all the time I was reading that paper, I was back home. Mm. So you still get that Millard? Uh, that uh, it Millard. Comes, comes every Friday. Wow. But it doesn't have much news anymore. So it's changed a lot. Different yeah. people. Huh. So is that the primary way that you um, handled homesickness was by being able to get home by reading the papers on a regular? Oh, yes. 
sure did. Yeah. So tell me a little bit about your, uh, you mentioned your mother sending you the newspapers. Uh, tell me a little bit about your family that you grew up in, siblings, uh, what your parents, I mean, you're, 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 you were ranchers and you worked on turkey farm, but tell me a little bit about some memories of you as you were growing up. Well, it seemed like we worked all the time. We had a few ball games and at the church and baseball games. I had two sisters. They're still living with a brother. He lives in Fillmore up on the edge of the mountains. We was, we were just, uh, we, we, as kids, we had to create our own fun, it seemed like. Right. We had horses to ride and chores to do. There was no riding skateboards up the street and all this and that. And mm-hmm. Going here and going there, you had to work. What was your favorite chore and what was your least favorite chore as you were, when you were a kid? Well, I used to have to get up and milk cows when it was cold. Mm-hmm. Go out there and milk cows before school. And that wasn't very fun? That was not fun at all. <laughs> Come and get cleaned up. Get your oatmeal and get on the school bus. What what uh, character traits did that type of work instill in you that you carried forward throughout your life? Well, uh, when we worked, when you do a job, you look back at it and think about how nice of a job it was, and and you're proud of your job. And I've tried to teach my kids the same way, and they picked it up. Hmm. They, they're very neat, take, take care of things, and where a lot of people, they, it's not their priority to keep things neat. Mm. Of course, I was in the military, too, but uh, all of my relatives have been that way. So, so doing things well and doing them in a neat, orderly fashion has been pretty important to you in your own yes. life. I tried to relay that to your family. Yes, that's right. He takes care of his garden really oh. well. Wow. Oh, well, very nice. So, so are you? Do you enjoy gardening right now? Is that is that kind of one of your hobbies you have going right now? No, it's kind of on the hold. It's on hold. Yeah, my son is living with me. My youngest, he's not married, and he helps me out. Good. And my wife passed away. Uh, last may oh i'm sorry we don't uh we still got the equipment and the place but we're not uh raising any too much work and i'm crippled and mm. yeah so so tell me a little bit about your married life tell me about your wife how you met her um and and raising your family okay uh, when i uh returned home from korea but I was going to tell you that Keppel Air Force Base where I was in Korea, mm-hmm. so it's been all levels off now, and it's it's Seoul International Airport. Oh, wow! The Han River floods down by Seoul, so they moved it up on the Mesa. So that's a, a point of interest at the old Air Force Base, and uh, MacArthur drove the communists right up from Seoul right through Keppel and on up to 38th parallel. Right. But uh, after the Korean War, I got sent to Luke Air Force Base in Arizona. 
9th of September, 1953. And it was hot. <laughs> I was assigned to work on F-84G models. Took care of the rocket post and pylons and guns. And uh, I was experiencing some hot weather. It was in September and it was hot. Mm. And I uh, decided that I wanted to try to get out of the Air Force. So I called my mother and says, uh, I want to get out of the Air Force. They got plenty of help down here. You go to the county agent and see if you can't get me out on a, out on a hardship discharge to come home and work on the farm. Mm. Well, I got into some boys and went over to Mesa to a dance on a Friday night. And that's where I met my future wife. Mm. And after that, I went back to the base and my mother never heard about me wanting to get out of the Air Force anymore. Oh. <laughs> I got married. I put four years in the regular Air Force and 20 years in civil service, huh. working on fighter jets and weapon delivery systems. Enjoyed it very much, working with the pilots on new programs. But now we, we build a house on Cherry Street over here, 532 North Cherry. It was that's well, in Mesa, right? Yeah, Mesa. Yeah. 32 North Cherry in Mesa. And as part of it, there was three acres of school. Bought the land from my father to put a high school in, it, my father-in-law, mm-hmm. for the high school, Westwood High School. And they, mm. they took it all but three acres, and they wanted it, but then they messed around. And my wife and her sister talked to their dad and said, Dad, we want to build homes there on that place. And, so we we made a purchase from the, my wife's dad, and that's where we are. And we got we sold a half acre on the south side to a, another party, and we're on an acre. Mm. And you're still at that same location where you first built, huh? Yeah, we built the house, subcontracted it out, and planted all the citrus trees. We have pine pine trees in front. We got all kinds of citrus in the back and pecan trees and a garden and a pasture. I even raised my own beef. Wow. So how, tell me about how many kids you have and um, some memories you have of, of raising the kids there on that uh, acre of land. Well, my oldest son that's sitting here by me now, mm-hmm. one day he, he always wanted to get an old truck and fix it up. He found an old Dodge pickup, 41, the 1940 Dodge Brothers truck <laughs> in someone's backyard down in the southwest part of town. And he went and made a deal with the guy, and I think he bought it for $50. And uh, he got his friend, my son got his friend to pull it up to my place. There he comes, this old truck in my driveway, dripping oil and everything else. <laughs> I says, no way are you going to put that truck in my yard. <laughs> well, he he talked me into it. We got it in the clear in the back so no one could see it. And it wasn't long after that that we got uh, kind of brought it up front and started working on it as a father and son's project. And it ended up being a, a good father and son's project. And it ended up having a stereo in it and mag wheels and feather upholstery and when he went on his mission, I even drove it out to the air base to show some of the people out there where it worked. Wow. 
And uh, so, and, how how long did you guys work on that truck together, and what type of bonding did that create between you? It's a father and son's project. Yeah, it really worked out well. <laughs> you still like each other even to this day, huh? Right. Uh, <laughs> And when he was on his mission, his girlfriend came out and she'd say, we got to get this truck fixed up where when he gets home and you need to get some new paint on it. And so we went to the junkyard and got a few parts we needed. And my neighbor next door, he, he'd done some painting and we got him to paint it cherry red. And he was due to come in from his mission. He was in England. Mm-hmm. So we, we put it in the front yard welcome home signs and well he flew over the house and he's air on airliner and landed at sky harbor in phoenix mm-hmm. and we on the way home we told him i said well gary was sure gonna be disappointed your truck we haven't got it running and we got to get to work on it yeah get it so it's presentable he says, I flew over the house and I looked down there and I seen my red truck punked in the front yard with banners all over it. <laughs> There's a welcome home for you. You got yeah. to see it from the air. But he ended up uh, selling it to someone in the Air Force and they took it to Texas. He had other things on his mind, the new business and yeah. furniture business and things going. Yeah. So tell me about other other children you have. Well, I have... Uh, a daughter that lives at my oldest daughter, she lives here in Mesa. Mm-hmm. She married a guy from Canada. And uh, other daughter, she married a local guy here. She lives over in uh, Lehigh. Her husband uh, was, works for Western Union and he's all over the western part of the United States and Highlands and Hawaii and all. Mm-hmm. He usually gets home for the weekend. And the other girl, she she married a Canadian and she lives in Alberta, Canada. Hmm. They come down every Christmas and she comes down visit on and off when she has time. So what are, as you look back at your life, what is a time when you felt was really difficult at the time, but when you came through it, you uh, had grown so much from it that it was worth going through those trials. Okay, I'll put this experience in front. In 1950 and 49 and 50, there was a record snowfall in, in Utah. Mm-hmm. The, the western part of Utah, which used to be winter range, it had three to four feet of snow on it and their cattle was out there and sheep Mm. and they bunched up and had no feed. I was living down with Harvey Cummings at the time and helping him on his farm. And the cattle, they were just bunched up in different places and you'd go out and try try to get them in. We got some in into the stockyard and we fed all of her hay up and then we got some oil cake, cotton seed meal and fed them until we ran out of that. And grandpa, he says, uh, well, we got this ranch out at Horse Hotter, that was southwest of Kenosha, Utah. Mm-hmm. 
and the the sun's uh, melted the snow on the south side of the hills and the grass is all green out there. The grass is dry. We need to get the cattle out there. We can just get them out there. They'll graze on that and get that dry grass. Of course, on the north slopes of the hills, it's still got snow. Mm. Well, we had a problem. There was no road because it was all three to four feet of snow. So he got a hold of the forest service and they they moved in with a D8 caterpillar with a blade on top. He pulled a camp wagon behind it and a little trailer with diesel fuel. And we was seven miles, we took the cattle out to, along the highway 91 out to the seven mile point and then left the highway and went followed this D8 caterpillar and he he'd go, he just made his own road wherever the drifts were smaller than the big ones mm -hmm. and made his own road, went over fences and we followed him. We got out to uh, the Horse Holler Ranch and the cattle, they were just tickled to death to get up there on the hills and get that dry grass and I had an appointment to get back to the, I was on a floor show a mutual project and I didn't go to school that day and my partner she thought well I guess I won't have any partner today I someone said he's going to horse order to take cattle well I knew I had to get back so we I and my uncle we had the the stock trailer the stock truck back at the highway and we we thought they were contented the cattle and so we went back and loaded the horses in the truck and went back and I got cleaned up and got the golden green ball on time and things went well. Hmm. But in the middle of the night, the highway patrol knocked on the door. Uh -oh. Mr. Cummings, your cattle are scattered all over Highway 91. They're laying on the road. Uh -oh. We didn't barricade the cattle. When it got dark, they hit the road came right back to the highway and some of them made it clear back to the stockyard. Wow. So we back to the drawing board. We took them out the second time and we barricaded the road and we didn't have any more trouble with them. Mm -hmm. So what did you learn from that experience? Hard work. Hard work. And gosh, now they, well, there was a lot of cattle at the, they uh, couldn't even get in. They were still bunched up out on the winter range with the heavy snow in 50, spring of 50. Mm -hmm. So they, the Cattlemen Association, they got with the government and they had some C-119 flying boxcars flying to Nellis Air Force Base. Mm -hmm. And they, they got a bunch of baled hay out there and put it in the, those flying boxcars. They flew up along the western part of Millard County and where they'd see a bunch of cattle, they'd kick out a bale of hay. Oh, wow. Operation Haylift in 1949 and 50. Well, I'm sure that was helpful to the cattlemen and the, and the cattle and, <laughs> and everybody for that winter. How, did, did you guys lose a lot of cattle during that winter because of that snow? Yes, we did. A lot of them just froze to death and starved to death. Well, good. What about uh, 
in raising your kids, what were some of the most trying times? So, so let me, let me back up and share a little bit about myself. I, so I have twins that are 19. So they're adult children right now, quote unquote, adult children. And I'm finding that um, being a parent to adult children is harder than being a parent to children, children. And I'm trying to learn how to parent adult children. Tell me some lessons that you learned in parenting children, some of the hard times and some of the things you learned from those. Well, I had a good wife. She made sure that the kids had dresses and boys had white shirts to wear to church. And there was no other, no other thing to do other than to be where you're supposed to be at the time. Feel good about what you're doing. So is that uh, that kind of a motto, a family mantra? Be where you're supposed to be and do what you're supposed to be doing. That's right. You go to church and you you get uh, you have all the things put in front of you, and then you need to lock them in your mind and and not forget them. Hmm. Yeah, so so it's just where you're expected to be and doing what you're expected to be doing. How so? How did you deal with? You know, I'm sure that your son Chad there never got out of line. I'm sure that's never something that that happened. But if by chance he ever did, how did you deal with that? What what type of disciplinary actions did you employ in your in your family? Well, I never had anything with him. Never had anything like that. Wow, that's really good. He's losing his memory. <laughs> He's losing his memory. <laughs> you just remember the good stuff, right? Yeah, that's right. Well, that's good. So here, here's a question for you. What do you want to be remembered for in the generations to come? Well, I try to keep things neat and... Uh, I have lots of awards that I'm proud of. That the 25 years I served with, with the Air Force, I have a Superior Performance Award, and I, I'm a member of the Tactical Air Command Thinker Club, which I I modified an aircraft and got a thousand dollar check from the Air Force in my improved type maintenance on the F-100F aircraft. And I, I, uh, I had to retire early because my hearing was getting bad, uh, so much no jet noise on my, my ears that I had to take an early retirement. But I, I didn't retire. I found something to do. I went into the produce business, was selling fruit from my trees, and I and my wife done that. And we always had something to do. We didn't sit to the rocking chair as you did that and sold fruit from your own fruit trees, um, what types of relationships did you build with the community in that process of, of, I I mean, in order to do that, you've got to build a relationship with the community, but maybe who were your best friends? Who were your best customers as you did that? Well, I went to the mining towns where the miners, they had a regular payday and I would take an orange and I'd cut it in half and take it to the door and say, we got some sun-kissed oranges. They're very sweet and taste one. 
Oh, we don't need any. But after they taste one, they say, how much are they? Well, bring me one. Uh -huh. so you got a first customer. So you go back on every payday and uh, I just, I'd go up with up the street with a box of oranges on my back and a dog chasing me and barking, but <laughs> I did, still didn't stop and done it for years. Yeah. Enjoyed doing it. Do you have any mentors in your life, people that you have looked to and asked advice when you, when you ran into um, obstacles? Well, my grandpa D's, my, my father-in-law, he was a World War I veteran. Mm. He was a real example of people. He was a real example, and his son was an, a real good example, but he, he had an accident in Ertlet. He lost his life at an early age. Mm. Fell off the, a ladder, putting these Christmas lights up. Mm. But he, we, our family really lost uh, a lot of uh, know-how in the financial department uh, when we lost uh, my brother-in-law because mm. he, he knew how to manage money and stuff. So you mentioned your father-in-law being a really good example. What is, what is an example of uh, something he did that had an impact on you? Well, he knew how to save. In fact, he, he done some things that probably a lot of people wouldn't think about doing. He was a peddler, sold oranges. Mm -hmm. He got home from the second, from first world war, and and he uh, he heard that uh, they were going to draw for a half a section of land out on east of the east of Mesa on the desert. And uh, if you was a World War One veteran, you'd go to the state house and put your name in the hat, and and if they drawed your name out, you. You had to go out there and live on it for six months and prove up on it, and then you'd get the deed for a half a section of land. Hmm. So there was three World War One veterans that went over to the state house, the Capitol, Ted Slager, Preston Dees, my father-in-law, and uh, another guy, I forget his name now, but they all three got drawed. Mm -hmm. So he had a half a section of land out on the desert. And then at Christmas time, we went out there and we were, rented a road grader and made a road out on the land. And then at Christmas time, we'd uh, put our number number in a hat and we'd draw to see which piece of land, which five acres we'd, we'd get for Christmas. Oh. So we'd done that for about three years. So we, we got some land on the desert and it, it helped uh, our family to get homes and like kids and all. Yeah. And now it's, uh, we was out there the other day and it's, there's, there's houses on every, every inch of the ground. Wow. Where it just used to be a, in fact, the Dobson brothers, they, they'd go out there and put their sheep on there and they'd give him a mutton every year to let him graze their sheep on his desert land. Huh. So, so was that in like Far East Mesa or Apache Junction or Queen Creek? Where was that land? Okay, that's uh, halfway between Apache Junction and Mesa on the north side of the highway, north side of Apache. Okay. 
Yeah, there's, there's, I don't think there's any desert land out there anymore, huh? What other words of wisdom do you have that you'd like to, or, or additional stories that you'd like to share before we close this up? Yeah, there's one. Okay. Uh, now, east of Fillmore along Chalk Creek, there, there was an old mill, a grain mill. And in 1947, I and my school friend, Ralph Jackson, one day after school, we went up to the, the mill and his father, Arnell Jackson, was a miller at the time. The mill was powered by water from Chalk Creek. Portion of the creek water was diverted into a down, down mill location, first through cement ditch and then to a steel pipe down into the mill. And if it, the water wasn't uh, used for the mill, it would just go right back into the creek below. When it, was, when it was time to operate the mill, the miller would turn a large wheel, which would let the, the water pass into a turbine, which allowed the pressured water to be entered in the building. The pressure of the water forcefully passing through the turbines slowly started the, the motion of things turning inside the mill. You can hear the cracking of belts, pulleys, and the growling of drive shafts begin to turn. The large grinding stones would get up to speed. You could feel the whole building shaking, cracking, and squealing. When the large stones got up to speed, the wheat crackled in between the stones and flour poured into sacks. Technology has came a long way since then, but it's inter interesting to take a glance back to the early settlers of Fillmore. Yeah, that is an interesting story. And you worked there in the mill every once in a while, huh? No, I didn't work in the mill. My friend, my high school friend's dad was a miller. Right. So you just go and observe it every, you just went and observed it that time, huh? Yeah, he showed us how it worked. Wow. Now it, it's all history. It's all been tore down and done away with. Yeah. And the Indians, they used to bring their wheat in and the miller would make sure that the Indians got an equal share. They didn't take any out for operation of the mill for the Indians. They got the same amount of flour that the the same weight they brought in, they went out with flour, the same weight. Good. Um, is there, are there any other words of wisdom or stories you have there? I think we've pretty much covered all the wards and stuff. And uh, I got that big certificate that uh, they sent that to me. The war department did. It's a 1950 and 53 Korean War 60th anniversary certificate of appreciation to Chad J. Carling and Secretary of the Air Force. And I got a picture of my aircraft uh, that I worked on and shot down eight MiG 15s, Robbie Reisner's plane, mm -hmm. and the 50 caliber machine gun with the side off of it. Mm. So throughout this conversation, you've uh, alluded to and talked about being a man of, of faith. Oh, I, I don't know. I'm not, I'm not up on the scriptures 
I'm not, I'm not a scripture man. I, uh, I do labor. You, you're out there uh, working in the field and, and all day long doing that. And that's, that's good stuff. Can I say one thing? Absolutely. You know, uh, <clears throat> I'll just say that uh, my dad, if there's one thing, he's uh, about the hardest working person that I've ever, ever known. And he had a powerful influence on all of us. And as far as the, the church, like he said, he's not probably a scriptorian, but he, he lives his life. Um, and his life is a scripture in my feeling and my idea. And I, I will say that he's, if there's one thing about my dad to this day, when, when Sunday comes around, he gets up and he gets his white shirt on and he goes to church. And yeah. my whole life, if there was one thing that he taught us as children, is that he was always in church. He's always been an active member of the church. Well, very good. Well, last night I had the member of the bishopric in my house and the member of the state presidency. And they interviewed me for a temple recommend in my house. And uh, I now have a temple recommend in my pocket. I know I was I was headed up to Utah one year and my wife and we had car trouble around Beaver, Utah, and we had to be pulled in and we found a mechanic that uh, agreed to stay in his shop and help us get back on the road. And I told him, I says, No, I haven't got a lot of cash with me, but but if I I may have to write you a check, will you take a check? He said, if you got a temple recommend, I'll take your check. <laughs> and you were able to say, all right, huh? So we, we made it. Things went well. Well, very good. Well, it's been an honor to sit down and talk with you, Chad. I really appreciate this time. And, and it sounds like your uh, life has just been one full of experiences and opportunities for growth. And it looks like the legacy that you're leaving um, on down the line is one of um, hard work and order and uh, good people, salt of the earth people. That's right. His life in Fillmore left a lasting impression on him. Yeah. And then his experiences in Korea. Um, and not too many things would take him away from Fillmore, Utah. But uh, a lady, uh, a sweet uh, lady named Ludine Carling, got him to stay here. In Mesa, Arizona is a great place to live. Well, there you have it. Thank you, Chad. And thank you, Chad the Younger, <laughs> for facilitating this conversation, for making sure that we have a great conversation with some very good history, some meaning, and some words of advice that can last us for generations to come. Once again, if you find value in the Know and Do podcast, please go and subscribe and review us on whatever podcasting platform you are using and come check us out on Facebook. Look us up at no and to do podcast and also keep your eye open for the journey through life podcast coming soon. Mm -hmm.